morning, it's time for us to begin. Good morning, it's time for us to begin. If you will have a seat. Welcome uh, to the worship service here at Rome Church of Christ. We're very happy to have everyone here. We're especially happy to have uh, any visitors that we have, and we do have some uh, in the audience this morning. Uh, we're glad you've come our way. Uh, you're our special guests. Uh, we would like to get to know you better, so uh, don't run out the door. As, as, soon as, as soon as we're finished, uh, if you will. Uh, we attempt to worship God in spirit and in truth here, and we attempt to do Bible things in Bible ways. Um, those are sometimes used as catchphrases, but they, I think they capture uh, what we attempt to do here. Um, our directory is rapidly coming to a, a conclusion. Um, a final stage. Uh, this evening, more than likely, there will be copies out there of uh, the study groups and service groups in what we view as relatively final form. Of course, that could always change if someone lets us know something. Then uh, we will also, you should be, uh, if your name is on that list, you should be getting a call uh, sometime within the next week or so to, uh, from an, either an elder or a deacon um, who is in charge of your study and service group, your life group, as we sometimes refer to it. And they'll be setting up a time for that first study meeting. Uh, the book that we will uh, be using is uh, Without With Doubt, and it's uh, on, on Christian evidences. And uh, we're going to start with, with that. And, and uh, once a month, you will have a meeting. Everyone's invited. Bring your friends, whatever. And we're just going to attempt to study God's word and something about God's word um, in a smaller group setting. We're trying to get to know one another, trying to bear one's, uh, one another's burdens better than we are trying to tighten us up as, as a family unit. Um, also, though, the service responsibilities will be on that same sheet, and you will be able to talk about that at your first meeting uh, as well. I'm trying to make sure I got all my points made here. The directory, uh, which will be coming out, it's going to be in a three-ring binder so that we can add to it and take away when people move or when people uh, come and uh, begin worshiping with us. It is a directory of the individuals who attend here on a regular basis, and that, that is how we're using it as a communication uh, tool and as a contact tool. And so that will be coming out. We've had the um, draft out there on the table uh, for the last few weeks and asked people to um, check their information to make sure that it's accurate. Uh, we, we've taken that now and tried to incorporate that into a final list. And those directories, David, within the next week or so, maybe, once I get the final list back to you. Okay. Joe Robinson. Joe, would you just raise your hand? This is Joe Robinson. Joe's been uh, worshiping with us a little last three, four months, I think we decided. He has uh, asked the elders uh, to consider him, uh, place himself uh, as a member in this congregation. We've had to talk with him, and, and we've accepted 
uh, Joe as, as a member. So he will be working with the congregation. We put him in one of the service and study groups already. And so uh, thank you and welcome uh, to Joe. Lord's table today will be uh, conducted by Jerry Stevens. The reading and prayer by Derek Knapp and Kevin Harvey will have our closing prayer. And I believe that's all I have to mention. So let's bow, go to God in a word of prayer before we begin. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we regularly have to come here and learn more about your will and to study more about you, to do the things that you expect of a local church, of your body, of worshipers that, that gather here in this place. We pray, Father, that as we worship you, that we will do so in spirit and in truth, that we will do so in accordance with, as we can best assess the pattern that we find in the New Testament. We pray, Father, that as we do so um, on a regular basis, that, that we will be edified as a group, that we'll be strengthened so that we can leave this place and go out into the world and, and be good examples of what you want us to be as Christians and as children of yours. Help us, Father, to take your word to other people. Help us to realize the sacrifice that you have made in the giving of your son and the sacrifice he made on our behalf when he came to this earth to live and die and bring his word to mankind so that we will know how to please God in the Christian age. We pray, Father, that uh, later on, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, that we will each do everything we can to focus our thoughts upon that sacrifice and upon his love for us and what he went through for us, not only in the suffering, but also in the taking upon himself our sins. We have forgiveness of sins because he came to this earth. We pray, Father, that we will always keep him in mind, especially as we partake of the emblems later. We ask that you be with those who are not able to be with us today, whatever the reason, we, could, we ask that if possible that, that could be removed and they could be back with us again and that we could be back to full strength um, as we were in the past. Forgive us of our sins, Father. Be with us now as we worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all please stand. First hymn this morning will be number 810, Jesus Loves Me. <clears throat> and before we get too far, Drew, were, were we able to get that second song? Uh, okay. <clears throat> number 810, Jesus Loves Me. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. There's no one to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me. He who died, heaven's gate will open wide. He will watch so many my sins. 
Next hymn this morning, number 249, How Precious is the Book, 249. And after this hymn, Brother Derek Knapp will have our scripture reading and prayer. How precious is the book, be my inspiration here. Our scripture reading for this morning uh, comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read verses 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servants of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Will you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. 
this time and this hour that you've given us as the congregation of those that gather together to worship you, to lift you up, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth, as, as your word has taught us to do so. Father, is my prayer that everything that goes on this morning is to bring you glory and to give thanks for all that you've done for us, for your sending your son Jesus, who is our hope and our, and our salvation. And Lord, as, as we go about our service, bless what is done here. May all that is done be, be for your edification and for your glory. As in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Next in this morning, number Just a remark or two to help prepare our minds for the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a special symbolic meal. The elements of the supper are ordinary, made up of things we could eat and drink at any time. What sets the Lord's Supper apart is its meaning. The simple items were given a symbolic meanings by Jesus which he explained to his disciples. I'd like to read from Mark 14, verses 22 through 25, if you'd like to follow along. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. 
And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. The observance of his supper was given to the disciples and instructions to continue it as remembrance of him and his sacrifice for us. Would you bow with me, please? Father, we are thankful for your son who loved us so much that he came and died for us. Bless us, Father, as we partake of this bread in resemblance to thy son's body. In thy son's name we pray, and amen. Would you bow with me as we pray for the fruit of vine? Father, again, we come thanking you for your son who died for us. As he hung on the cross, shed his blood to wash away our sins. Bless us, Father, as we partake of this fruit of the vine. Pray so, Father, that we've done it all in a way that's pleasing unto you in accordance with your will. In thy son's name we pray, and amen. Hopefully one day we'll be able to go back to the way we used to pass the trays and pass the collection plate. But we have differences now with COVID and we do have places that you can put your offering and those are the two boxes in the back of the building as you leave the building. We'd appreciate it if you drop whatever you can there. Let's bow. Father, we're thankful for the many blessings of this life that you've given us, for the jobs in which all of us have or have had and how we've been able to be a blessed congregation and that we can be self-supporting, that we can support different 
things here at, at, at the building that, that we can have this building and, and, and the many other things and, and be able to have Chris and David to work with us and, and be able to supply them with needs that their families can come and be with us. And we're thankful for all these many blessings. We ask that as we give our money for these things that we do it in a way that's pleasing unto you and that we can help our light shine in this community. We ask you, bless us, forgive us. In thy son's name we pray and amen. That's all. Please stand at this time. We'll sing hymn number 253, How Shall the Young Secure Their Hearts? <clears throat> it's at this time, too, that the young children may go to the children's Bible hour. Number 253. Invitation hymn for this morning, number 788. 788, wonderful words of life. <clears throat> this time, Brother Chris will get us. Good morning. We are beginning a new series this morning uh, for our AM class as well as the PM class as well as the, uh, the Sunday morning Bible class. So we are just all over the place this morning. And that is good and good. Um, but this, uh, the series we're calling, What Do You Believe About the Bible Today? Uh, and we're going to be going through a series of apologetic lessons. There's four of them. It's only going to last throughout the month of September. I know sometimes this kind of information can be daunting. It can be tedious. Uh, it's not for everybody. I think these lessons will be for everybody. I think they are things that we need to hear, things that we need to think through. Uh, and so if this is not your cup of tea, if apologetics and Christian evidences, is your, your eyes start to glaze over, stay with me. I think this will be beneficial for you. 
So today we're talking about what do you believe about the Bible? And really answering the question, can you trust your Bible? So when you, uh, when you ask that question to the world at large, you're going to come up with a couple of different answers, right? Uh, if you ask someone on the street, well, can you trust your Bible? They might say, well, there are some contradictions in it, aren't there? Um, maybe there are some contradictions. And you're going to get a variety of different answers there, right? Uh, some people are going to say stuff like, well, where did Cain get his wife from? If God created Adam and Eve and they were the only two people on the planet and then Cain and, and Abel were born, then where did Cain get his wife from? And some of them are very simple like that and you no doubt know the answer to this question already and while it doesn't fit very well into 21st century American Christianity or into an American society the way we think, uh, Cain married one of his sisters and so that's where he got his wife from. And so a lot of people will say, that's just a really simple uh, way to point out that there is a contradiction in Scripture. And well, we can come back and say, well, it's just a really easy way to, to say that there's, there's no contradiction in Scripture. Well, what about, what about marriage? In the very beginning, same passages we're talking about early on in Genesis uh, chapter 3, chapters 1, 2, and 3, really, God looked, at, looked out at creation and said everything was good. And in the case of Adam and Eve, he said it was very good, right? And so is marriage good? Well, in, in the beginning, he said that it was. But over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he seems to indicate that maybe it's not. And so some people might throw this up as a way of contradiction, as a way of um, believing that the Bible contradicts itself. So you may want to take a look at that real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's start in verse 8. Paul says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Right. So he, he kind of portrays marriage as something that's it's okay. But it's kind of a second-class thing. It's if you have to do it, you should. But if you don't have to do it, then don't do it. And so is that a contradiction between what he says in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and 1 Corinthians 7? Is marriage good, like he says in Genesis, or is it, eh, like he says in 1 Corinthians 7? All you husbands should be saying, it's good, right? Your wife's sitting next to you. So... It is good. There's no contradiction found in Scripture here. There may be a misunderstanding, though, on the part of some of our friends who might raise this, this idea of a contradiction here. What's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is very simple. Uh, they, the church is being persecuted, and it's a lot easier to stay faithful to God if those you love aren't being tortured to make you give up your faith. And so Paul looks at the first century church and he says, it'd be a whole lot easier for, for all of us if we were all single. That way, the Roman government, Satan's pawns, don't have any leverage with us outside of our own lives. And so he says, it'd, it'd be great if we were none of us were married. Is marriage still good? Yes, right? It's still good. God made it good and it is still good. Uh, so there's no contradiction here in 1 Corinthians 7. There is 
a misunderstanding. And that, that's where a lot of these contradictions come into play. Uh, and we need to put co- contradictions in quotation marks, right? Because there are no contradictions in Scripture. Let me take you back to that first thought there. Can, could we write a similar document? Could, could you write, you and maybe a group of 47 of your closest friends, write a document like this? I say 47 because that's how many roundabout authors there are in Scripture. There are several books that we don't know who wrote them. And so there may be 50, there may be 46, we don't know. But around about 47 different authors of Scripture. Could you and 47 of your closest friends pen a document like this? No, probably not, right? But it gets more complicated because could you... And, well, there we go. Whoop. Could you and William Wallace, remember the Scottish hero William Wallace, Braveheart, I'm not endorsing the movie, but you know what I'm talking about. William Wallace, could you and William Wallace talk about the same section of history in the exact same way? Or would you two contradict most likely you would contradict something that William Wallace says because he lived 800 years ago, right? What about, uh, let's, take, let's take Muhammad, for example, the, the founder of the Islamic faith. Could you and the prophet Muhammad talk about the exact same section of history? If both of you were to write a book, a short story, for example, even a paragraph, if you and the prophet Muhammad could write four sentences... Over the Crusades, would you two contradict? Most likely, right? He comes from a completely different mindset, a completely different perspective. In addition to, he lived 1,400 years ago. And so he's much closer to these events, uh, as well as looking at them through a different lens than you might. And so those four sentences, something in that paragraph that you were to write with Muhammad, something would contradict. Here's why I'm bringing all these dates and all these people to your mind. The Bible is written across 14 to 1500 years. Everybody with me? Moses wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy somewhere around 1440 B.C. Around 1450 years (coughs) before Jesus was born, Moses is somewhere in the Sinaitic Desert pinning Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's amazing because he's going to tell the exact same kinds of story. (coughs) Sorry. He's going to tell the exact same story, make a lot of the same references as, as Paul, Peter, and John will 1,400 years later. And they never once disagree. They always tell the exact same story. Sometimes the guys in the New Testament, Peter, James, John, the rest, will tell you what Moses really meant and shed even more light on what Moses was saying in Genesis through Deuteronomy, as well as the rest of Scripture. This document has borne the test of time. You could not write this document again. If Muhammad started it, 
<coughs> if Muhammad started writing this document and you finished it, how many contradictions would there be? <coughs> Holy cow. Okay. Try that. Um, how, many would, how many contradictions would there be if you and the Prophet Muhammad wrote a book with 45 friends throughout the span of history? Right? A ton. Some of those guys were educated, like Paul was educated. Some of these guys are incredibly educated. The scholars of their day. Some of them are simple fishermen. Some of these guys are just tradesmen. They don't really have an education. That's not one to speak of, at least not one that's well respected. Some of these, some of these guys, uh, like Amos, the prophet Amos, this guy is a shepherd as well as a sycamore fig uh, gatherer. He's a farmer. Across every different type of education level, every kind of job, every socioeconomic status, every kind of worldview. Daniel doesn't write his book. Esther doesn't write her book. <coughs> her book's not written from an Israelite perspective. They grew up in captivity. And so they write their books from a Persian and a Babylonian perspective. But guess what? It always lines up with the rest of Scripture. Isn't it amazing? You could not replicate this book if you tried. It's impossible for people to do it. It just wouldn't work. You and I, as a matter of fact, if you want to try this experiment, we should try it sometime. You and I couldn't write a paragraph about something that happened four weeks ago and both of us agree, much less 1,500 years ago and agree. Right? We can't come up with this document. Man did not come up with this document, so God must have. There are no contradictions throughout it. We can trust this book. Here's another one that you need to think through, uh, and this is one of my favorites. So I love history and I love archaeology. But archaeology proves that we can trust the Bible. Do you know about the Hittites? Are you familiar with the Hittite nation? You find them an awful lot in Scripture, right? They're mentioned something like 50, 60, 70 times throughout the Old Testament. And pictured as a major player in the Old Testament. Um, they are the, the Babylon or the Egypt of their day. These guys are uh, the superpower of their day. And so the Bible talks about them an awful lot. This is the, uh, the section of uh, the world that their empire took up. And you can see how vast it is. The problem is, while the Bible talks about it a lot, this nation, and while um, we think via the Bible that this nation took up a huge portion of geographic land... And while the Bible portrays this, this people, the Hittite nation, as someone everyone would know about, nobody's ever heard of them. Nobody ever found their capital city. No one's ever found any documents that they've ever written. And so people blasted the Bible. Uh, atheists ha have had a field day with the Bible because the Hittite nation, out of all nations in the world, 
If you can't find the Hittite nations, surely to goodness the Bible's a myth and a fairy tale. The problem with this is in 1906, they found the Hittite capital city. This is the ruins that are still there. You can go today and walk through the Lion Gate of Hattusa. Isn't that cool? Who wants to go to Hattusa with me? Next mission trip, we're going to Hattusa. So you can go today and, and visit this city. They've proven that the Hittites really were there. And in fact, that they had a massive civilization. Very much like, oddly enough, very much like the one that's portrayed in Scripture. And so while the atheists thought that the Hittite nation proved that the Bible was untrue, it actually helps prove that the Bible is true. Let me give you some more evidence for the Hittites. I think this is cool. So in this, these are some of the, the documents that they found, the archaeologists have found uh, over time for the Hittite nation. Thank you. Reinforcements. You're Gentlemen and a scholar. Everyone appreciates your work. Um, so you see some of these documents here. Uh, there's all kinds. Um, they found them in this, this, uh, this cave uh, right outside of the capital city of Hattusa. And they've, they've unearthed this thing in 1948. Uh, uh, Archaeology is still going through this portion of, uh, of the city in this area trying to find more and more about the Hittite people. But in this cave, they found over 32,000 of these things, these clay tablets. Um, they were in jars and baskets and all those kinds of things, but they were neatly arranged. Like God had just been holding on to them to prove that his word really is true. And so... You don't hear very much from atheists anymore about the Hittite nation um, because we know more about the Hittites now than we know about a lot of ancient cultures. And this is one of the most ancient cultures. In fact, their language is the most ancient <coughs> that we've ever found. Cool, right? So you don't hear very much from atheists about the Hittites anymore because they help prove that scripture really is true. What about King David? You're, I mean, if you've been to Bible class a couple of months, you've heard no doubt of King David. In fact, our, our children's Bible classes, several of them learn today about King David. My girls brought us um, little uh, sheets that they had worked on today about King David. So if you are familiar with scripture at all, you're familiar with King David. The only problem is History can't find them. Surely, if David was real, surely there would be evidence out there somewhere, right? Somewhere there would be evidence of the great King David. They haven't found any. And so atheists have pointed to David and said, well, there's no way that the Bible's true. It, it is a myth because even David, the greatest king in all of Israel in history, we can't find any we can't find hide nor hair of them, right? We found them. Several years ago, uh, this inscription was found. It talks about uh, actually a story that you find in the book of Kings. In the book of Second Kings, you find two kings, an Israelite king, and, uh, well, 
the northern nation of Israel, his king, uh, their king, and the, and the southern nation of Jerusalem, their king, banded together. For once, they banded together for, to fight a common enemy. And they lost because God wasn't in this fight because he was ashamed of both, of, of both nations. But <clears throat> So he allows this other nation to, to conquer them. And this tablet tells that story. Isn't that neat? It verifies scripture. And you see the white part you see on the screen behind me, that is the house of David in Hebrew. Pretty cool, huh? So this, this uh, inscription is proof positive that David was an historical character, that he really did live, that he really did set up a dynasty in Israel, that his lineage lasted at least for the next 250 years because that's when this battle took place. You can trust your Bible. Archaeology backs it up. The science is on our side. It's always been on our side. In fact, they're still unearthing uh, the remains of a palace in the old city of Jerusalem that they think is David's. So that will be a very cool find if they can prove that. So archaeology proves, and these are just three examples, and we'll talk about Pontius Pilate in just a second, but these are just three examples. We could have chosen literally hundreds of different examples. These are just my favorites to talk about, to prove that you can trust your Bible. Pontius Pilate, you guys know him, right? He's the one that uh, washed his hands of Jesus' death. He is the governor over the area that Jesus lived in. And ultimately, Jesus' death sentence comes down to this man. Problem is, we can't find him. <coughs> this guy's a Roman. <clears throat> but we don't know where he is. Uh, throughout history, you haven't been able to find him. All the way up until they found this very tablet. It's amazing to me that so many of these characters throughout Scripture that the atheist communities have hoisted up on this pedestal and said, this, this guy right here, he proves that you can't trust your Bible, that he's a myth, so your Bible's a myth. It's funny that we find the exact tablet that disproves that somewhere along history. You have to wait sometimes, sometimes, because this stuff's under layers and layers of earth. And because most of these, all of these civilizations were completely destroyed by the ones who took them over. So, of course, they're hard to find. But they're coming out. And they've been coming out over the last 100, 150 years, 200 years. We've been finding more and more of these. And as time progresses, guess what we'll find? More and more. This is just the tip of the iceberg. So... Atheists have pointed to, to Pontius Pilate and said, well, surely a man of this stature, a guy who has this much power, somewhere in the Roman government, you'd be able to find some reference to him. We found it. In fact, this, um, this tablet was on an ancient Roman theater near Caesarea Maritima. The temple was most likely uh, a... a uh, a temple in honor of Tiberius Caesar that Pontius Pilate paid for. And so it's got his name on it. Uh, and you'll see uh, on the, the screen behind me how that, what that actually says. But basically it's saying that this was donated by Pontius Pilate in honor of Tiberium Caesar, Tiberius Caesar. So we found him. 
He's in Scripture. And the atheists have said, well, you can't trust your Bible because all these various things, we, we haven't been able to find any of them. And we're finding all of them. We're finding all of them. Step by step. You can trust your Bible because archaeology backs it up. Because there are no contradictions in it. But also this thing called scientific foreknowledge. That's a $10 word. But basically it means that there are some things that Scripture knows about science that it shouldn't know. That it's way light years above its time. Let me give you a couple of examples. You may have heard of this guy before. His name's Ignaz Simmelweis. He's an Austrian doctor. He lives around 1847. And he runs a labor and delivery hospital for mothers, obviously, right? So he's there uh, delivering babies. And the problem is one out of every six mothers and babies die. It eats him up. He can't stand it. This guy's a physician. He wants to help. He got into this business to help. And now 18% of the women that walk into his clinic are not walking back out. And so what does he do? Well, he starts doing a little bit of research. He starts looking around at the different things that are going on in his hospital while he's contacting some of his friends who run hospitals similar to his across the country. So he, he met, meets up with some guys in London and Paris and the big cities of his day. And all of them have similar mortality rates. Somewhere around one in six women die in 1847, if they come into the hospital to deliver. Samuels can't figure it out. He's stumped. And so he starts looking around at his hospital, and he's watching his doctors. And so he says, well, you know what? When the priest comes in the hospital to offer his prayers, he rings this bell, and I bet I know what's happening. The bell is scaring the mothers literally to death. And so what does he do? He commands the priest, no more ringing that bell. So the priest obliges, he doesn't ring the bell anymore, and guess what happens? Mortality rate stays exactly the same, right? He keeps on looking around. Um, he keeps on trying to find what's going on, what could possibly be killing all these, all these expecting mothers. Uh, he turns the women over on their sides to give birth. Guess what happens? No difference. Still one in six of them are dying. And so he keeps on looking. He keeps on consulting with friends. They're no help. All the other hospitals in the area are experiencing similar mortality rates. And he's watching these young doctors. And they will do an autopsy on the deceased mother. They'll wash their hands in a communal bucket. They'll dry their hands on a communal towel. And they'll go directly into the labor and delivery room to deliver the baby. So he says, huh. I got an idea. How about we set up, instead of the communal bucket, everybody gets their own individual bucket. And you need to, you need to use soap. You need to wash your hands in, the, in your individual bucket, and then you're going to get a disposable towel, and you'll wipe your, your dry your hands on your disposable towel. Then you guys go over and you do the labor and delivery room. Guess what happened? His mortality went, rate went down to 3%. 3%. Sometimes it was down to 1%. You know what's going on, right? They're transporting germs from the deceased mother into the expectant mother. And it's killing them. How did he not know about germs in 1847? 
because nobody knew about germs in 1847. It's brand new knowledge in 1847 that germs from a deceased body could be carried to a well body. Nobody knew that back then. In fact, this guy, Ignaz Samelweis, Dr. Samelweis, will spend the rest of his life contacting those other hospitals, saying, hey guys, I'm on to something. This is amazing. You need to wash your hands with soap and then dry them <coughs> on a disposable towel. And then your, your mortality rate will go, will go down. Nobody believed him. Isn't that amazing? He spent the rest of his life trying to convince people that there really were germs. And everybody laughed at him. This, his theory wasn't proven until after he had died. That's interesting for us, right? And it's a good story. But where does it come into play for us? Grab your Bibles. Turn over to Numbers chapter 19. Numbers chapter 19. Way back in Numbers. Remember who wrote Numbers? Moses, right? Around 1400, 1440, somewhere around there is the time of the Exodus. So about 1500 years, 1400 years before Jesus is born, Moses is writing... The book of Numbers. Here's what happens in the book of Numbers in chapter 19. Start in, uh, let's start in verse 1. <clears throat> now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, This is the statue of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. Everybody with me? Bring a cow that nobody's ever hooked up to, uh, that nobody's ever used for, for plowing. Verse 3, and you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. And the heifer shall be burned in his sight, its skin, its flesh, and its blood with its dung shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire, burning the heifer. Well, there you have it. Makes sense, right? Doesn't make any sense, does it? What, is it? what could this possibly have to do with Samuelweiss? Well, let me share it with you. Because if you keep on reading in Numbers chapter 19, which I encourage you to do, you're going to find that this mixture, the, the ashes of the, the, the cow and uh, the, the um, cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet yarn, all that was burned, mixed together, and put in. A uh, bucket of water. <coughs> Do you know what you get with that mixture? With the mixture that, that he's talking about here? Ashes, cedar wood, scarlet yarn, hyssop, lava soap. You guys remember lava soap? Anybody use lava soap today? You get lava soap if you use this mixture that he's talking about in Leviticus, or excuse me, in Numbers 19. You get soap. You mix all these ingredients together, you put them in water, and not only do you get soap, but the scarlet wool acts as um, scrubbing agents. You guys ever use this, uh, this morning burst stuff, and it's got those little granules in it, and you kind of got to scrub, and it feels like you're all nice and clean on your face? That's what the scarlet wool functioned at. And so they had to scrub this stuff to get it off their hands. What are they doing? After they touched a dead body, after they touched somebody who was sick, 
They're washing their hands in soap. 1,500 years before Jesus was born. 1,350 years before Samuel figured out that the germs existed. How in the world did Moses know that? Well, Moses was raised as an Egyptian, right? And Egypt, we know, had the best medicinal purpose, uh, practices of the day, right? Wrong. Egypt did not teach Moses this. They had a lot of cool stuff. They had a lot of uh, technological advances, but their medicinal practices were garbage. They thought that how you healed someone who has, a, who has an open wound, anybody have an open wound? If you've got an open wound, they said, well, how do we heal this open wound? You've got pus in there, but you don't have enough pus. And so we need to find somebody else who has an open wound, and we scrape their pus out, and we put it in your open wound, and that'll heal you surefire, right? And then you died. And they're like, huh, that's weird. That's what the Egyptians said. That's how you heal somebody to an Egyptian during Moses' day. That was the rhetoric that he was raised up in. That's how he thought you should heal people. But when he comes to Numbers 19 and he says, you need to be clean, we're going to do it God's way. Because he didn't rely on his own understanding, right? And so he's talking about germs 1,500 years before we knew they existed. How did he know that? Scientific foreknowledge. God told him. Because this book is not written by Moses, right? Moses was the penman for the first five books of the Old Testament, but God's the one who wrote it. And so he's got a little extra information that we're not always privy to. And that's the case here with uh, germs. It's also the case, case with this idea that life is in the blood. In the book of Leviticus, uh, you find that statement in verse seven, uh, chapter 17, verse 14. And he says, For the life of every creature is its blood. The blood is its life. And so they found something necessary in blood. You need it. You got to have it to survive. In fact, there are um, there's things in your blood called hemoglobin, uh, and I'm told, if I've got this right, that if you had even 10% less hemoglobin, you could bleed to death when you sneezed. Anybody trying to hold back a sneeze? Right. So we know today that blood's important for us. But they didn't know it back then. In fact, as late as George Washington, the doctors that were trying to heal him of his sickness that killed him, do you know how they tried to heal him? They put leeches on him to suck out his blood, to suck out the bad blood, right? They probably bled him to death trying to save him because they didn't know that the life is in the blood. How did Moses know it? 1,500 years before Jesus was born, if the best doctors in the country couldn't figure it out 200, 300 years ago. Because God told them. God told Moses, life is in the blood. You can trust your Bibles. It's, got, it's not a science book, but when it talks about science, it's always right. Let me leave you with this one. Uh, also in the Pentateuch, when Moses starts talking about the covenant... Uh, males had to be circumcised. And he's very specific on about what day males were supposed to be circumcised. He's, he's very specific. He says it has to be on the eighth day. Well, why? Why on the eighth day? Why not the first day? Let's get it, get it over and get it done with. Why not the tenth day? Why not, why not when they're a year old? Why the eighth day? Well, what, what you probably don't know, 
uh, is, and what I didn't know, is vitamin K is over 100% on the eighth day of a baby's birth. I don't know why, but it is. Now, you know what is important about that? Vitamin K is a, a clotting agent. Kind of cool, right? So the perfect day to do an ancient surgery is on the eighth day when your, clot, when your blood's thicker than it'll be any other time in your life. You heal quicker. You don't bleed to death as fast on the eighth day as you would on the seventh day or on the ninth day even. So it's interesting that Moses is talking about that 1,500 years before Jesus is born. But that's not what the Egyptians taught. They didn't know anything about that. How did Moses figure that stuff out? Because God told them. You can trust your Bible. Because when it talks about science, it's light years ahead of its time. Because it doesn't have a single contradiction in any of its passages. Because we couldn't replicate this book. It's too far beyond us. And because archaeology proves it to be true. So, <coughs> now what? If I can trust my Bible, what should I be doing? I can certainly trust it. It has the words of life, right? It's God's words given down to man. So now what should I do? Let me make a recommendation that you follow it. Right? Follow it. Live by it. Line your life up by it. In the New Testament, Jesus is going to talk about some things that will save people. And his apostles clarify the matter. If you want to be saved, the first step you have to do is be baptized into his blood. That has your sins washed away. That's the words of life, right? I know I can trust my Bible now. And so I am sold out to this idea that baptism is the way to salvation. So today, if you've not been baptized, you need to make that right this morning. Maybe you've already made that decision, and you just need the prayers of this congregation to be who God would have you to be. We want to help you in any way we can. Why don't you come today as we stand and sing?
Good morning, church family. I feel like I should spray the podium down with Lysol. <laughs> I'm joking, Chris. <laughs> great lesson. Uh, so we uh, had a great week this week. Um, uh, had another uh, fifth quarter. We had probably about 60 kids here at, at Rome. Um, thank you for all who donated uh, drinks and and uh, who helped with chips, and it was a great time. Kids had a good time. It was good to fellowship with those kids as well, and um, our next uh, fifth quarter won't be until the end of the month, September 30th, uh, so you'd like to get involved with that, please see me. Um, we're needing helpers to cut grass this month. Um, Greg is busy. Uh, and it's a busy time of his month right now, and he, and he needs help. If you can help him cut grass, uh, please see him before you leave. Uh, please see Greg Sullivan before you leave. You, and he will show you where the boundary's at, where the lawnmower is at, uh, and where everything is located. Um, this evening at uh, 5 o'clock from 5, 5 to 5.45 will be Sunday for the Saviors. Uh, we'll be making boxes uh, to send out to uh, the Church of Christ in Kentucky for the volunteers, some toothpaste, some soap, just some necessities that the volunteers may need, and a card to encourage them on what they're doing. So please get your preschool to fourth grader involved with uh, Sunday for the Savior. Also, uh, tomorrow, no school. Um, in case kids, you didn't know that, um, but there's no school tomorrow. So, but... Uh, so at 6 o'clock, uh, which is dinner time, we're heading to Krispy Kreme because who doesn't like donuts for dinner um, at 6 o'clock? So, but, uh, so uh, bus will be leaving here at 6 o'clock, uh, so looking forward to seeing everybody come to that. Anybody's welcome to come to that. Also, uh, Wednesday at 5.30 will be Stepping Stone Supper. Um, Connie and Jeremy are not here, so I'm not sure what's on the menu, but Stepping Stone Supper will be at 5.30 on Wednesday. And also, we'll be heading to Carter Caves on Saturday. The bus will be leaving at 1230. Uh, the guided tour um, will start at uh, 130. So we need to leave uh, right at 1230. Um, also, I have a thank you card. It says, Dear Rome family, thank you all so much for the prayers, calls, flowers, cards, dinner provided after mom service. Once again, my Rome brothers and sisters surrounded us with love during a difficult time. We love you all and we love you all and are so thankful for you. Uh, in, in him, Sherry Pittman and the family of Wanda Allen. Uh, so this will be posted out in the four-year board. And remember to continue on our prayer list. Um, uh, uh, Lisa and Hank, it's good to see Hank here with us this morning. But remember to continue uh, to keep Lisa in her prayers as she's dealing with cancer. Uh, remember to continue to keep Gary Fry uh, in your prayers as well as he, he undergoes his test, his heart test. Uh, 
Kathy Walls, it's good to see you here with us this morning. Uh, Mara, continue to keep her in your prayers as well. Um, and uh, remember to pray for Jennifer Baker and uh, Jim Haney and Chad's mom and dad and uh, Vicki Bowen. It's good to see her here this morning, but continue to keep her in your prayers as well. And um, it's good to see Maddie Parker here, um, here this morning. She has a six-year-old um, who needs prayers as well. It's one of her students in North Carolina. Um, the six-year-old uh, has leukemia. Uh, and uh, desperately needs prayers at this time as well. So um, that's all the announcements I have at this time. Uh, looking forward to seeing everybody again at 6 o'clock this evening. We'll sing one more song. We dismissed in prayer. Let's all please stand again. We'll sing hymn number 154, Give Me the Bible. <clears throat> we'll sing verse 1 and verse 3, <clears throat> and then Brother Kevin Harvey will have a prayer. Give me the Bible, star of that is gleaming, to hear the marker, love and death is gone. No storm can hide that raging for leaving, till Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Give me the Bible, holiness is shining, Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, as we come to you once again today, Father, we're truly thankful for everything that you bless us with in this life. Father, we pray that you'll continue to be with the church here and all the good things that are going on. Pray that you'll continue to be with the deacons and elders and the fine work that they do. Continue to be with the preschool and all the Bible teachers and all those that teach, Father. Let them know that their work is not in vain. Father, we pray especially for all those that are on the sick list. You know each and every one of them by their name, Father, and you know their need. Pray especially for all those that have heart problems, cancer, or whatever, Father, that you would continue to be with them and continue to bless them and bless the doctors that care for them. And, and pray especially for all the shut-ins, Father, to let them know that they're still loved and cared for and help us to help them in any way that we can. Most of all, Father, we pray for our shortcomings, that you'll help us to be better people in a crazy world, Father, and all the things that are going on. Pray especially for all the people, Father, that's had floodwaters and heat waves and whatever, Father, that you would continue to bless every effort that's being put forth to help them, Father. 
Most of all, Father, we pray for our shortcomings that you'll continue to be with us and forgive us of our sins. In Christ's name I pray, amen.